This week on Mike Coscarelli Rules, Texas becomes the first state to open for business since the coronavirus pandemic. Plus, has Stanley Tucci made the best travel show of all time? And of course, I'm joined by New York City radio legend Race Taylor to discuss the future of broadcasting and what qualifies certain music as classic. That's a tease, and this is Mike Coscarelli Rules. He is so cute. <laughs> Mike Coscarelli? Mike Coscarelli. <laughs> Mike Coscarelli is here as well. He's the producer for this failing fucking radio show. A big hand for Mike something Italian. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Sexy thing. How you doing? That's too much. My parents listen to this podcast. I can't be starting the show like that. I'm not going to do it over, though. Trying to live in the moment and be as authentic as I can be. Who am I? I, of course, am your host, failed comedian Mike Coscarelli. And I'm here again. It's another week. Uh, It's another late episode of the show. This is becoming a habit. I'm really sorry. Don't really know what else I can tell you. Uh, Big project kicking my ass, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, folks. By 325, March 25th, 19, I almost said 1921, March 25th, 2021, uh, we will be uh, back to normal. And there will be lots of um, punctual Mike Coscarelli rules content for your ears. Um, Today, it's a little late. Not much to say, really. Uh, I'm second half of this podcast. I have a really interesting in, uh, second half of this podcast. I have a really interesting conversation uh, with one of the great broadcasters that I've ever worked with, a radio legend in New York City, a man named Race Taylor. If you're not from New York City, it's not vital that you're from here to enjoy this interview. We talk a a lot about some interesting things regarding the future of radio, the future of broadcasting and podcasting. Uh, And Race is also obviously he's been a DJ for, uh, I don't want to age him, but a really long time. He's been involved in in radio and music for, for decades. Let's just put it like that. So if you're a fan of music, this is also a great show to listen to because Race and I talk a little bit about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And since he is a DJ on uh, what is now a uh, classic hits, which is also it means oldies radio station, um, he has some opinions on what makes music classic, what makes something a classic hit. Because now in 2021, we're moving into an era where, you know, the Backstreet Boys might be considered a classic hit. It's 21 years ago, you know? Uh, when I was a kid, classic hits and oldies was considered stuff you'd hear in an ice cream parlor, you know, doo music, uh, you know, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, old, really old, what is now very old music. Um, so, you know, we, we talk a little bit about that and, and what makes something classic moving forward. And it's a great interview. Race is a legend and, and he's such a consummate broadcasting professional. So that's coming up. Before we get into that, a couple things that I saw this week. Texas is going to be the first state to open up for business um, since the coronavirus pandemic started. Uh, this should surprise nobody. We figured it would be a race to between either Texas, Florida, which you could argue never really shut down in the first place. Maybe a couple of the other southern states. There's a couple places that stick out. Alabama, you know. Um, but this shouldn't really come as a surprise to anybody. And... It, it it's a very strange thing. If you live in the Northeast or if you live in a liberal place, a liberal state, whether that's California, uh, New York, New Jersey, any Boston, anywhere up here, um, c- cities seem to be a lot more um, concerned with the pandemic for 
pretty obvious reasons. I think we all live on top of each other in cities. Uh, you know, there's a little more room to breathe in a, a place that's a little more rural or suburban. Um, I think I mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts, going out to New Jersey to my parents' place last year when this pandemic started, it was like night and day. It was leaving New York City, which at that time, which was the epicenter of the pandemic. It was as bad as it is, as really it's been. Um during this entire time, I knew a lot of people that were sick. I, I was afraid to leave my house because there's people walking around everywhere. There's this person wearing a mask. Are they not? This is before we knew that being outside, it's basically, it feels nearly impossible to, to, to transmit the disease. Uh, but I, it was terrifying. And then I went out to my parents' place in New Jersey and I was like, oh, this doesn't really seem all that bad. People are in their houses. When they're not, they go for a walk. Nobody is around them. And I can't imagine what it's like in Texas where there's even less people than, well, not less people because Texas is huge, but there's certain places you can go to in, in Texas where you can, you know, walk for miles and probably not see another person. So this makes sense. Uh, and we're a little more cautious and in some cases, perhaps a little rigid about, um, restrictions on the, the coronavirus, but, I had a, I, I was going to, I almost said I was seeing a barber. Like he was my girlfriend. I was seeing this barber. I had a barber that cut my hair for a really long time. Uh, the only guy that had ever cut my hair in New York city for years, probably six, seven, maybe almost eight years. Um, he, no disrespect to this guy who will rename nameless, but, um, he was not a big believer in COVID restrictions. He was not very afraid of it. He was pretty pissed off that the government shut his business down for a while, which I can understand. But um, I'd say that we would talk about this and I would be as sympathetic or empathetic as possible to his situation. But we were clearly at odds politically uh, on how we viewed the whole situation. And I have since stopped using this barber. Uh, he became too much of a bummer to be around because he was sort of projecting onto me, which isn't appropriate to begin with, but projecting onto me his issues with the fact that, you know, New York state shut his barbershop down for a while. And as a small business owner, he's it's, it's hard out there to survive. I get it. But at the same time, I'm sitting in the chair trying to get a haircut um, and it's not necessarily something that you want to have uh, thrusted upon you as you are just getting a haircut. It was constant, uh, and it was a constant bummer to be around. So I stopped going uh, and getting my haircut with him. But one of the last conversations I had with him, probably sometime in the fall, he was telling me that Florida and Texas were going to be the new New York. And how people were going to go down there because the government hadn't shut their shit down and you can have a business and the freedom and all this nonsense. And I almost laughed at him at the time. I thought it was one of the most ridiculous things I'd ever heard. I was like, people are not leaving New York and going to Texas. It's, it's just not going to happen. Like uh, people are not leaving New York and going to Florida. It's just not, you know, it's not going to happen. Gradually over the last couple months, my foreign barber has been a thousand percent right. And I think that when you're in the bubble of living in a big city, it is very easy to forget that the country has been divided right down the middle on this entire pandemic. And there is a, there's a lot of people in this country that don't think that this is a, a very big deal or think that it's over at this point. 
And obviously there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but after this, how bad this winter has been in New York City, I absolutely underestimated how many people were just going to be like, dude, fuck this. It snowed every day in February in New York City. Why am I not in Miami right now where the bars are open and we can just hang out and do whatever? Uh, why am I not in Austin right now? Austin, all of a sudden, has become the spot. It's going to be like the the third or fourth hub for enter- the entertainment industry. I can't believe it. All it took Joe Rogan and Elon Musk to go down to Austin. And now every comedian that I know is taking a shot and moving from New York City or Los Angeles to Austin. I'm stunned. I cannot believe I know I know at least five people in my own personal life that have moved down to Austin or are thinking of moving down to Austin to pursue comedy or podcasting or or whatever. And I kind of can't believe that there's going to be an industry popping up in these places. But people are moving because the the taxes that are going to be coming to New York City and probably California to try to cover the losses that we've just had for this past year and change are going to be very high. Uh, and people are going to set up businesses in places like Florida and Texas where now you can you can really I mean you're risking getting sick but you can you can seemingly just start doing shit normally in Florida and Texas business as usual or back to business as usual whatever it's pretty amazing um whether it's a good thing or a bad thing I don't know whether it's a good thing long term for New York City uh it probably depends um on what you want out of New York City. For me, it's a good thing because I'm a New Yorker and it'd, it'd be nice to see some of the, you know, if more of the money leaves and it, it, the rent, rents kind of go down a little bit and this becomes a more uh, livable place for regular people, which I think is something that we we kind of desperately need in New York. I, I don't plan on leaving. I don't think, you know. Um, if you are coming here to set up a business, no, probably not the best place to be, if I'm being honest. Uh, you probably want to go to some of those other places, but I'm a New Yorker. I'm not going anywhere. I just think even myself, I laughed when I saw this, oh, Texas open for business, you know, good luck guys, (laughs) but it shouldn't be all that surprising. And at some point, I mean, I do still think it's too early, but at some point there's going to be backlash to whoever sort of opens up first. Florida, obviously you can argue really never closed, but Whoever's going to open up first, people are going to laugh at them, especially if it's one of these states like Texas or Alabama or Mississippi. I think Mississippi is also opening up um, and getting rid of their mask mandate soon. But obviously, people are going to laugh at them because it's it, this has become the way of life that everything is locked down. And then we'll all start to follow suit once more people are vaccinated. I'm sure New York City will uh, at some point. Uh, we probably can't be that far off from opening up things uh, at a little bit of a higher clip. I, I wouldn't think given how many people are starting to get vaccinated and the numbers are starting to go down and the summer is coming. It sort of just makes sense. But um, those are my thoughts on Texas opening back up. Uh, seemingly silly, but I don't know, not all that surprising. And we'll see what happens. Hopefully let's also not hope for the worst, by the way. That's another thing. It's very fun to pick on Texas and laugh, whatever. And maybe it is a, a a decision that they're making too soon. But let's not hope that a lot of people get sick and die because it would be great for you know people's tweets 
that would not be a good thing either. And that would also make you a piece of shit. So let's try to be nice about this. And, uh, you know, we're all there. Texas is rolling the dice. Let's see what happens. Hopefully it works out for the best. Wouldn't you like to go back to normal? I would love for us to go back to normal. Let Texas try it. If that's if they want to try it out and see what happens, fuck it. Rather them than me. And then if it works, we're right behind them. Uh, so there's that. Also, hope you're watching the new Stanley Tucci show on CNN. Stanley Tucci searching for Italy. Uh, listen, anything, any travel show about Italy, I'm in. Uh, I love seeing the motherland uh, in all of its beauty. It's just, it looks so beautiful on film. It's another reason. It's, I think it's a, it's a part of the reason why Italian movies are also so dope. If you ever watch like Fellini films or anything like that. Uh, it's just beautiful place. Beautiful, visually so stunning. Uh, and he's all around. He's going to every region in Italy and it's, it's a lot of fun to watch him eat the food. He also, this might be one of the best versions of one of these travel shows that I've seen. I, I think fuck that's delicious, which is the action Bronson show for me takes the crown because I like authenticity and there's a lot of people that have mimicked, uh, Anthony Bourdain. Um, who is sort of the OG at this and Bourdain's cool. I think Bourdain is a tiny bit overrated cause he's sort of become this like rock star, uh, food journalist, chef guy. Bourdain was always dope, but Bronson was one of the first people that I saw do this show and kind of do his own thing. And it's, it's like got a very defined voice. And I kind of think that this Tucci show has that too. And the thing that I like about Tucci show, as opposed to the other shows is, and this is what I like about Stanley Tucci in general. He is not afraid to be an adult. He is a uh, refined, cultured, adult Italian man who is in great shape, clearly takes good care of himself. He's got Hunger Games money, so that makes sense. But th- he's not doing a show where he's trying to like appeal to, hey, kids. I- and we need more of that, I think, in the culture. There's so much youth culture, period, uh, in this country. And I think it's a bad thing. I think it's nice to see an adult. I don't know how old Tucci is. I'm assuming he's got to be somewhere in his late 50s, maybe early 60s. Probably like not that much. Probably in the ballpark of where my parents are uh, age-wise. And he wears adult clothes. He looks like an adult man. He carries himself with a lot of dignity. Uh, It's shot to make him look very curious and, and he's very classy. All of these things are something that we fucking need right now. We need a class act on TV who isn't just a shitheel with terrible Twitter opinions. You know, you see him um, sort of sparingly. He does great work on the screen. His Instagram is great. He's just making cocktails with his wife. Uh, I, I, we need more of that, in my opinion. I think we the country needs to have a role model that is just a total class act. Uh, and if he eats some San Marzano tomatoes while he's doing it, I'm all for it. So it's a lot of fun. It's a good thing to check out. And if you're just working from home, it's a nice thing to even just have on the background. Food shows in the background are the way to go, man. I, I've run through fucking seasons of top chef probably i can't tell you what happened on any of these episodes but it's nice to have on in the background while you're you know uh getting screamed at on work emails so keep that in mind lots of fun okay uh i've wasted enough time here let's get to race not much else to say um rate review and subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already tell a friend 
Uh, everybody's got to hear my opinions on Stanley Tucci. So make sure that people in your life know that this show is happening. Uh, Ronnie is also not with me today. So go ahead, follow Ronnie on Instagram. She's at Ronnie side. Uh, she's a good kid. Uh, she still thinks she's going to drop out of college, even though the audience is telling her no, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, if she drops out of college to work on this show, um, boy, oh boy. Am I going to feel guilty? Because this thing is weeks from collapsing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, follow her. Follow me. I'm at Mike Coscarelli on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can email the show, coscrules at gmail.com. Uh, always down to give you guys some advice uh, and always down for some feedback and some notes. Send it there. Do not put it on the iTunes review if you have some sort of issue or note for the show. Other people can see that. Let's keep family business within the family. Huh? How about that? Okay. Without any further ado, New York City radio legend Race Taylor is on the other side of this very well-selected music bed. I'll see you in a second. Okay, folks, we're back on Mike Coscarelli Rules. I have a very special guest joining me right now. You can hear this man's voice on K-Love in Dallas, W-O-G-L in Philly, and the legendary WCBS-FM in New York City. You've also heard his voice on ABC Television. We welcome to the show radio icon, Race Taylor. Race, thank you for joining us today. I am blushing. Icon, please. Icon. I wish I would have had more descriptive words to throw in there, but I'm not smart enough to figure that out. <laughs> That's a nice one. I'm going to use it on words with friends. Am I dating myself? <laughs> words with friends? Maybe a little bit. A couple years, okay. perhaps. Right. Uh, um, what's a decade? For, <laughs> for the people that might not know who you are, because sure. your your voice is legendary, uh, you know, at least in the tri-state, uh, you know, in other places, too, because you've done so much voiceover work and everything, too. But mm-hmm. how long have you been in radio and broadcasting? I mean, it's got to be 30 years. Am I right? Hey, not bad. Yeah. Um, I... Once upon a time, you needed a license. You had to pass a test and do all kinds of math, calculating power and wattage and all this other stuff. And that was like the mid 80s. So I remember being a nervous wreck uh-huh. being in college, thinking I'm I'm a music student. I'm too stupid to pass all this math. There's no way they're going to give me this license. Uh-huh. And uh, and that was the mid 80s. And my first full time job was in in the late 80s. So what is that? You know, that's at least 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, you've been around for for about ten years, right? So, so it's yeah, it started like that, really. Is that right? They had a wattage test for you to be a DJ. You had to be able to calculate power and make sure you know you could uh, adjust the transmitter if necessary. You know all that stuff. There's an actual landline. I hear Am that. I Tell them that myself? you're. <laughs> out of the gate sounds like a 75 year old man back in my day we had to calculate wattage why did all that stuff why so why what what was the what did what was the reason that you guys had to know all that stuff i think you had to take these readings every hour and then mark them down and and you know initial them because it was an official legal document now there are computer programs that measure all that stuff but i think they had to make sure you weren't you know sending out too much power right okay well all right so 
some background for the listener. We actually talked right. about you a little bit last week, Race, because um, we had talked with last week's guest, JL Covan, about the Springsteen podcast, and we had thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things... We had mentioned you because I had, I had told the story, and I don't know if you fully remember this, but um, a couple years ago, when we were all still part of the, the PLJ clan in, in New York, right. um, Sting was coming. To, with Shaggy. Do you remember this? Sting and Shaggy yeah, came in. Absolutely. The Grammys were downstairs in right. New York City. That's yeah. right. It was the Grammys and we were having all these interviews come up. But Sting was like this big fish that we landed because I remember how intense the whole um situation was because it was like we're only gonna we have Sting for 15 minutes. We only have him for 15 minutes. And who's gonna who's gonna do the interview? Who are we gonna get? And it was like the fucking like the sea parted and it was like race Taylor is doing this interview. It's like, who who's the guy who can get in there 15 minutes, do a nice tight interview with a rock star, like a rock legend uh, with all these people. I remember there was a memo going around on the floor. People weren't allowed to go in and, and talk to him or take pictures. It was literally in out. We sure. have to get this. And you just, just unflappable just like yeah like it was like watching a cowboy like walk into a studio and just be like oh yeah i'm gonna just i got it i got it no problem so when you started in the business is that the pull is the pull the idea of being the guy that does the interview with the rock star is the pull for you playing music obviously i can't imagine the pull for you was recording wattage uh for the radio station but it seems like that was part of the gig (laughs) right right well uh you know, oddly enough, if you go back 20 years, just about from that Grammy interview that you were part of, mm-hmm. my first real superstar get interview at PLJ was Sting. And I was petrified. Yeah. You no, know, he had uh, a burgeoning solo career, but all anyone ever wanted to do was ask him about, you know, when are the police getting back together? Mm. And, you, you know, he couldn't come to the room without you asking that. So you get some sage advice from, from other people and you, you save that for the very end. And hopefully he's warmed up to you and he knows that you're not trying to get him Hmm. and, and he'll be happy to answer that question. But um, in the very beginning, uh, one of my first part-time shifts I did on the air in a significant market in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, they had this thing called like, it was a second street party. Second street runs along the river and mm-hmm. I worked for a, a top 40 station, WKRQ, Q102. And I'd just come from uh, an oldies station in Dallas where I was playing like 50s and 60s oldies. Yeah. So I had a Richard Marks mullet and a bad mustache. <laughs> and I'd show up at classic car shows and be able to talk about the Beatles and Dion and, you know, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And everyone would go, who are you? The guy I listened to on the air has curly gray hair and, you know, uh, 200 more pounds on him. I just right. didn't sound like, you know, my voice. So I was dying to get back into top 40 music. And I finally landed a part-time job in Cincinnati. And one of my first shifts, they were doing this live remote and they threw me in a trailer and they're like, Hey, you're talking to firehouse, you know, hair band from the eighties, couple big ballads, a couple rocking things. It was a big deal that we had them playing at this free concert, you know, outside of some bars on a street on a summer night. And I'm like, well, what am I going to talk to these guys about? Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a music education. So without getting too deep into the process of songwriting and everything else, I just felt like, well, these are my, these are my people. I'm comfortable. You know, I, I don't, I didn't have the hair yet. 
I couldn't rock a sleeveless shirt and stonewash jeans. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I could talk with them and I felt like I could carry the conversation and go off of a list of things that I thought um, were important. And then you have to realize over the course of time, you know, I spent so many hours watching like Letterman at night who right. when it comes to the art of the interview. I mean, this guy, and, and I know there's a lot of heat about a lot of different topics and a lot of different guests right now, but you have to realize you know, late night television or daytime talk shows have six minutes to get the right. job done. They need to promote whatever the artist wants to promote, hopefully have a moment for them to shine, um, tackle something that is obviously wrote, oh, you're here to talk about the new album. Tell me about the new album. And then maybe uncover something unknown to the audience that makes your interview different from everybody else. So I right. watch Letterman all the time thinking, how can he do this with politicians and actresses and musicians and newscasters? You know, when Peter Jennings or Tom Brokaw would show up and they would talk, it would be as fascinating as julia roberts or Cher, who hated him yeah right and and, and you kind of you loved being the audience member watching that tension where me then several years later thinking well i'm gonna ask sting about the police and it's the last thing he wants to talk about inside you're sweating bullets and your mind is turning and it's not a comfortable situation but you pray to god that when you listen back it sounds like a conversation that flows something that's you know engaging so yeah well the difference between somebody like you and letterman uh, it, it radio obviously for for the longest time i mean radio was a is was such a tastemaker in the music industry and sure. when i was in like doing radio stuff in college and and I was very interested in the idea of kind of playing records that people hadn't heard before. I say records because I'm also I'm a 75 year old man too. <laughs> but, <That's okay. laughs> now that vinyl's so huge, right? I know, yeah. CDs, you can say records. We're back, but like the Kids idea know. of kind of like being a music aficionado. Um, you're interviewing a lot of obviously you've you guys have as as long of a career that you've had you've interviewed all types of different people but when you're interviewing musicians specifically do you think that being a musician yourself also kind of breaks them in in a way that cuz I don't know that Letterman at a certain point you think that Letterman the one thing that he has that's relatable to some of these people is that at a certain point he's also really famous so in right. some ways it sort of feels like you have to be a like a again going back to this Obama Springsteen conversation it's like right. at a certain point who who else they they can speak to each other sort of like equals in a in a weird way because yeah, they're it's just a fascinating both, conversation sure right they're iconic uh, in different ways but they're both they transcend a certain type of it's not just like an interviewer talking to obama uh a guy who's like a professional interviewer writes for a paper or something like that do you right. think being able to talk to like would would that make somebody like sting light up if you'd be like, yeah, man, like I, yeah, I've, I've been around music forever. Like I, I does it, does it make him feel like you're one of his people in that way? Well, you hope so. You know, just like, like this, I'm, I'm rarely a guest. So this is exciting for me. <laughs> you know, I'm all of a sudden I'm on the other side of the questions and I'm like, Oh, is it fun? I want to be entertaining. <laughs> you're doing great <laughs> so far yeah i'm having a blast i hate looking at myself but aside from that it's a, it's a good time uh, but going back to that grammy moment with sting you know he and i had had several conversations 
including some uh, very somber and poignant and musically important ones shortly after 9-11, when our 30th anniversary party was one of the first live musical events. And he came up to the to the radio station. So we kind of we had a history. So you hope that right. these people remember you and that they feel safe in your company um, and that they can maybe open up a little bit and, and tell you some things that, you know, maybe even they forgot. And I, and I had, you know, some great people along the way give me some advice about doing interviews. You know, Tom Cuddy and Scott Shannon and my uh, boss before that in other markets, Jimmy Steele, were, you know, we had live events and the times were different then. You had 10 minutes on the air with an artist and then a commercial break and we'll be back and they'll play a song and more interviews. And now all of that stuff happens off the air and you play, a, you know, here's a, the highlight, the rest of it's living online. And this is where the podcast space comes in because there are people who long for a long form conversation for deeper subjects and uh, in-depth answers and exploring some things. And the great thing about having a chance to talk to some of these people is you hoped without boring everybody else, you uncovered something that, that people were waiting to discover that the true fans wanted to know. That's the other thing. How do I, how do I appeal the mass person who maybe is a fringe fan, something that they need to know or didn't know, and the hardcore person who's heard them on three other television shows and a, a morning show and a, another radio station, you know, what can I do that will set myself apart from, from them and make it entertaining? And I think the biggest thing a lot of people forget is this is, even in the podcast space, supposed to be entertainment. Right. So it's a little twinge of fun, you'd think. Right, right. Exactly. And the biggest thing about the the podcast space and that everyone who else who can do them is just because you have one doesn't mean you're you're qualified to grow an audience <laughs> yeah. right but this is actually this is a big thing that i wanted to talk about with you because again like to give people some some background on on you you are i, I, I wouldn't say you unless i'm wrong you didn't have this type of career you you didn't really like kick around a bunch of smaller too many smaller stations right i feel like you got you got to new york kind of quick am i right um i i don't know about quick a decade let's say since i had my first full-time job i didn't realize it was even that long i I remember i feel like i had had conversations with you in the past and in my mind it was always like because dude i remember i grew up listening to plj and i remember hearing your voice as a young person and that Mm. for me had to have been 20 years ago I think right. So, uh, yeah, that sounds about right. So to me, two thousand one. I was just like, yeah, the race has just always been in New York, and race has always been because I can't really remember a time where I, I would hear the radio and you wouldn't be on it oh. in New York. Holy so, cow. but I, you know, working in this business, you know, so many people that kick around these smaller. I, I knew this uh, I, uh, dude that worked at ABC, who we both know, who will remain nameless, but huh. a guy, an older guy, who had been in radio since I guess sometime in the seventies, maybe or the maybe the early eighties, who okay. had just been market to market to market to market, and you know, eventually ended up being kind of like a board operator at 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 ABC, which is like a kind of like the job that I was doing at first, you know, you wouldn't think that somebody who had been around that long would end up there. Not the point that I'm trying to make, but the point is essentially like 
these years of experience and going from this place to this place and competing here and learning from this person and learning over there, that's mm-hmm. definitely something that doesn't exist as much anymore in the podcast space because I think people will just pick it up and, and just right. do that. Do you think that that is a necessary path, though, to, to be good at this? Well, I don't think there is one specific path. The other thing about traveling from market to market to market is when you started at small towns and you were on it, you know, two o'clock in the morning at Dayton, Ohio, you could make mistakes. Right. And you could be called on the carpet and hopefully, you know, be invited to come back to work the next week and everything would be fine. Right. You know, um, I, I worked in Toledo and Southern Detroit. There's no real place called South Detroit, but down river Detroit, um, Dayton and Columbus and then Cincinnati and Dallas. So I did my, my fair share of nomadic stuff, but, um, even when I started, I'm like, well, here's a four mile radius from where I grew up outside of Detroit, Michigan. Look at all the places where I could work and still be, you know, at my parents' table for lunch on Sunday if they needed me or whatever. Right. And uh, and then it was my wife's adventurous spirit when we had an opportunity to go to Dallas. It just said, let's go. Let's see what happens. And um, being nomadic was part of the learning experience then because you had to travel and go to these places because they had the gear and the technology and the signal. And now, you know, we're in our offices, our home studios, our closets, our, our rooms are, you know, some people I've seen photos of rigs during this pandemic where people are at their kitchen countertop. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's amazing. But all of that, um, that nomad kind of, of things, I was, prepared for it to a certain extent. And then once I realized that, um, that maybe I would gain a little more credibility once I walked out the door somewhere, which proved to be the point. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that it wasn't so bad. And I learned so much and, you know, we became like a team. We were, we relied on ourselves to, you know, to learn and to grow and, and all those other things. So, I mean, I tried for interior promotions, many, many times at all these radio stations. Yeah. And they never wanted me till I was like, you know, I have an offer over here. I'm going to see you. Right. And then I was like, but wait, we were going to move you to here and give you this much money, you know? And it, it, it was kind of a different learning experience than right. the casting space now. Well, it se- to, to me, it seems like, and I, I've said this already, like you're the consummate broadcast professional out of everybody that I've ever worked with. It's always been race. Taylor is like the go-to for a good advice. Um, B uh, you're extremely approachable and, and like always have been talks to the interns talks to, you know, who everybody. Um, And you know, from being in this business that that is not necessarily common. People, hosts have egos and they can be not the nicest at times. You know, working for Imus was a very different experience from working down the hall with you. You know what I mean? Like you were afraid of him. I was never afraid of you. Uh, Be happy. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's great. You you have a different teaching methodology than than someone else may have. And I I mean, I was an intern. We're going to call it. Yeah, we're going to safely call it a different demeanor, a different uh, personal style. You know, I remember. You know, the first time I had an internship at an NPR station in college, I mean, I was ready to walk away from the music school thing because I was completely burned out. And Mm. my mother recommended, why don't you walk into the radio station? You know? Yeah. They're on your face. Your voice is low. See what's happening. Yeah. Um, 
and I had an internship uh, splicing together interviews. Like every, every, what is it? Lecture hall was yeah. into the NPR station. So if a guy was talking about biochemistry or marketing or finance, they recorded the interview and then they played them back at 1230 and it had to be a half hour interview. Is that what it was? It was like a, it was a literal lecture that they just. Right. Yeah. They, they, they oh would, my God. you know, they would do the news and whatever they needed. And then before they went to classical music at one o'clock, here was the part of the lecture series. Oh God. And so, you were how old doing that? Uh, junior in college. I don't know what age so that like, is. Like 20, 1920. 20. Right. So God. first of all, you're hoping you've got all everything patched in so you can record it. Yeah. On a reel to reel player. That's the size of a dishwasher. Yeah. And then they tell you, you've got to edit it. You know, well, this guy talked for an hour and 10 minutes, but we only need uh, 30 minutes or maybe you can make it two parts and we'll run it on Thursday and Friday. Right. Right. And you're trying to edit out the pauses and the unmiked questions from the back and making it work. And, and uh, the people that I worked for, you know, valued my work if they needed it by Friday at 11. So it could go on at 12. They had it in, in plenty of time. And, right. um, and then with all of that came some other opportunities. All of a sudden I have a key to the building and it's a state of the art studio. And they're like, we're, we shut off. We're dark overnight from midnight to six. So if you want to come in and use a production room, yeah. go play radio. Yeah. You, you play know, around and, um, a little bit. Right. Yeah. So, so I learned on my own in the dark. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, that's the thing. I, I do. What advice would you give somebody that's just picking up a microphone at this point? Because it doesn't seem like the it the path that existed, even when I was kind of coming up, ex- exists anymore. I, I feel like I was part of the last phase of people that came in. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, it just doesn't seem like, even with the corporatization of radio and stuff like that, those those like entry-level jobs don't really exist the way that they did even 10 years ago, I feel like. So that does kind of mean like the next generation of... Right. Um, right. There's, it, but we will always need stories to be told. There's going to be a, yeah. a different path and there's going to be a different means to, to listen to it. Yeah. Know, eventually, is it all going to be on the internet? You know, I yeah. mean, there will be, man, it's just, this is hours and hours of philosophy and conversation as to how things will be broadcast and to what attention span do, do people have? And, even if you look at it from a monetary standpoint, there are all these companies that still have money to spend to get their message out. Yeah. You know, I would like to think it's still going to be over the air. Uh, you know, the, the means is still there, but now we deliver it also, you know, online. What was the first time that you started seeing the shift to digital where you were like, Oh boy, things are changing. Do you remember, is there a seminal moment where you were just like, like, um, Oh man, they want me to do, they want me to do a video. I'm not a video, you know, or something kind of that, you know, the, the photos for everything as it started in the early two thousands. And the, I mean, you know, the part of the great magic of radio from the early days was the, was the mystery. It was a voice and in your mind, you conjured up what everybody looked like. Right. Right. You waited even in the, even in the late eighties, you waited for Friday night videos because you had no idea. What does Samantha Fox look like? Everyone's talking about Samantha Fox, you yeah, know, yeah. or yeah. Abdul, whoever. They're, yeah. The mystery of everything is kind of gone, as is the the joy that comes with the anticipation. I was talking to my brother the other day um, about drumming and musical things. 
And uh, there was a Paul Simon song that he was trying to learn how to play called Late in the Evening. Hmm. Steve Gadd is the drummer. It's an unbelievable groove. Um, and he couldn't find the record at yeah. a record store an hour outside of Detroit. And no radio stations were really playing it. And he'd already read everything he could read about it in Modern Drummer magazine. And he couldn't get his hands on the on the music itself because it's not available like it is now. Right. So the joy that came with, you know, me putting it on a cassette and sending it to him uh, from my part time radio job, a state away was like, oh, my God, here it finally is. Yeah. Yeah. You've already, you know, exhausted everything you could possibly figure out about it. Finally, you get it now. If you want a song, you don't even have to buy it. It's it's available online somewhere. Yeah. There's, there's no waiting. There's no the, the immediacy of everything almost. I mean, for the for the good of all of that is it also takes away some of the specialness of the of the achievement, you know? Yeah. I, I also, in my opinion, radio in a lot of ways was a communal thing in the sense that now everybody listens to music through their headphones. So with Spotify, with Apple Podcasts, whatever, you know, at least in New York City, you put your headphones on, you walk out into the world and you're listening to your own thing whenever right. you feel right. like it. But I don't again, I don't want to sound like a 70 year old man, but I came to a lot of music and a lot of these things because um, it's not necessarily just music, but even some comedy bits and audio bits like that. Like Mel Brooks, the uh, the. 2000 year old man and and all that stuff i think i just got the the number wrong but whatever the uh, mel brooks uh carl reiner audio bits were like i experienced all of those things with my parents so even when i mm. go back to driving around in the car listening to you on the radio it, even if it's just my parents having tape cassettes or a cd player I learned I didn't know who the be I didn't know any Beatles music until we were driving down to Florida and my mom played a but like the Beatles she had a CD in the car and we were playing it we had to plug it in but we were experiencing it the five of us together and I remember hearing Strawberry Fields for the first time and I was like wait this is the Beatles what the fuck I didn't know that this is yeah, the Beatles sure. you know and it was the same sort of thing I I, I learned about music uh, and even comedy the Eddie Murphy. Uh, my dad had tapes, cassette tapes, and I had a cassette player and I would just like put them on and, and like learning all of these things communally was something that I think that you'd experience because you used to just have to be around people to, you know, you're at the beach or you're at like an event or whatever and the radio is on, you right. know, and that's how you would get this new music as opposed to now, you know, Spotify will recommend it to you on an algorithm. Not, I don't hate it, but it's not the same as experiencing it the way that you used to be able to experience uh, with yeah, somebody the, else. Of discovery. Yeah, it's right. It's changed. Right? right, I get and that. And even my kids will talk about, uh, you know, what it was like back then. And the idea of someone roller skating down Broadway with a boombox on their right. shoulder. They're like, people did that? Yeah, yeah, I totally. Mean, it was. It was yeah. either in your car or on your shoulder. Yeah, Until all over New York. Music. You're just hearing people's yeah. other people's music. <laughs> you know? Right, right. exactly. Uh, yeah. So having been involved with all that, realistically, as a DJ, there was an era where if the DJ... I, I always thought when I was a kid, and I, I know better now, but I always thought that the DJ on the radio, like the music would go directly to him, that like Fleetwood Mac or whoever would send Race Taylor like, like hey, Race, it's 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 Nick <laughs> Fleetwood. Here's, here's the new tape. Like, let me know what you think. And then like... 
race would break it on the on the radio and i know obviously now it's it's a little bit different they you know the record companies work with the radio stations and that's how it makes it into a rotation but has there ever been a song that you would have to sort of introduce as you know the new hey we got the new madonna or we got the new whatever and you have to sort of hype it up as the dj because that's partly your part of your job right sure um has there ever been a song that you've gotten where you've been like Oh man, I don't think I can talk this thing up, but I have to. I don't know because I think part of the art is is creating that energy. Even yeah. if you're just, even if you're taking the emphasis away from the song and putting it on the production or putting it on on the hook or putting it on the excitement of discovering something new. You know, it's almost impossible for me once I start hearing something in my headphones to to not be excited about it, I guess. And I, I think that is part of the, you know, the beauty of, of the medium is getting somebody else to enjoy it. And we talked about this the other day from a political standpoint, even with a song that you didn't believe was a hit record. At some point in time, you heard it so many times that you were like, oh, maybe I like this. Yeah. Right. And then after <laughs> more times, you're like, hey, this is a this is a good song. And yeah. then all of a sudden, this is my favorite song. It's a crazy thing how uh, how the art of repetition works. But there were songs, surely, in my past that I didn't know that would be a hit song that ended up, you know, in, in the top 10. And I think the old adage is if anyone could pick, a, if everyone could pick a hit record, then we'd all be millionaires. Right. Yeah, There's no sense. telling what what the population is going to gravitate toward, but there's something about the repetition of it, the comfort of it. And that's another thing that you, after all of that time, you were very gracious to, you know, mention how long I've been here, that invitation into people's lives in the best of times and worst of times, or in their car or in their home or in their kitchen, you hopefully over the course of that many years start to create some credibility you know, you become yeah. part of their, their fabric and they invite you to be there uh, and, and you just can't show up someplace. That's why it's so hard to be right. a new person and just bang, there you are. Right. It's right. kind of, it's, it's like something you have to earn. Right. Indoctrinate yourself into people's lives in a way. Do, have you yeah. ever been surprised by a hit? Has there ever been a song where you've just been like, oh man, I can't believe this is, this is, we have this, we're playing this two times an hour because people love it so much. I don't get it. <laughs> well, well, never quite that frequently. Sometimes it seems like that, especially later, because once upon a time, you know, every radio station had their own songs that were part of their identity. Now a hit song shows up uh, across the board. It's a top 40 hit. It's an adult hit. You know, it may have crossed over from country. It may be used in an advertising campaign and then you're going to see them promote on television so all of a sudden a huge song which once upon a time would live on one station in one format suddenly it becomes omnipresent it's everywhere um yeah there there are some songs and there are some artists that i don't quite understand that continue to have a a mass appeal and, and and you know it's it's the country the nation the audiences opinion not mine that's another thing one of the first things that they told you was like listen you know if you think you're going to get a job playing only the songs you like in a format you're comfortable with you 
your chances of working are, you know, that much smaller. Right. You gotta, yeah. You're going to learn to love whatever it is that you're playing if you want to have any amount of success because your passion for it, your feelings about it are are what's contagious. You're on an oldie station right now. CBS FM in New York is is a legendary oldie station. I guess it, it's been oldies as long as I can remember, but oldies always changes. And right, classic hits, I think, is the term right now. It's called classic, it's classic hits now? Not, no longer. So, yeah, when I was a kid, oldies was, was doo-wop, you know, and the doo-wop shop was something that... Uh, 50s and 60s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Was, when you were saying before about talking to the the Cincinnati people about Dion and all of these old artists, that was you know driving around Brooklyn with my mom. That was the that's what we would listen to was you know Little Anthony and the Imperials and all that stuff. But now it's 2021, and what does oldies or what does classic hits mean now? Because we're talking 2000 being 21 years ago. If we right. do a, a transfer of time, that would have been the equivalent of hearing music from sometime in the late '60s by the or the early '70s in you right. know in the '90s when I was listening to it with my mom. So, ne- what's a classic hit now? <laughs> you know, I think the hyper focus and the passion right now, as the audience continues to age and evolve with the passing of time, it's still on on the '80s. And the time will come. It's when do when do we begin to, and how much of the '90s do you introduce? Because there was a, a part of pop music in the '90s, what was considered pop music in the '90s, that became very fragmented. I mean, what started it in 1990 and 1991 by you know '92 and '94 when Nirvana and Pearl Jam are all of a sudden on top 40 radio stations. You know, how can you have one place that will play Richard Marks, Tony Braxton, Nirvana, Young MC, Tone Loke? I mean, there was just so much fragmentation that you entered a very different era for for music. So what is classic hits going to be in the future that we'll have to wait and see what the audience will tell us? So you guys are on that threshold right now where the 90s, whatever the 90s mix for these classic hits could be anything. Mm-hmm. Do you like are you guys sneaking Nirvana in? Do you think not that that Nirvana. could happen? No, 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 not, okay. not Nirvana. I think in the past on a on a Friday or a Saturday, uh, you might have heard a, a Beastie Boys track or, you know, something along those lines. And then I want to say. I want to say Broadway told me a couple, uh, Broadway Billy told me a couple tracks he's played in the past. And I'm like, really? That kind of blows my mind, (laughs) especially because I, I, I always, and I think that my parents, I don't necessarily want to throw any, anybody under the bus by saying this, but I, I think that, I think that for a period of time, something that was defined as oldies or classic was also in part defined that way because of the type of attitude the music had with it. And I think that a lot of the older music is, you know, for lack of a better word, edgeless, you know, there's somebody like Glenn Campbell, who I've been listening to a lot of lately. Okay. Uh, Cause again, I'm 75. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, he's awesome. And he, well, I hope I, you're listening to Galveston for crying out. <laughs> I love Galveston. It's become one of my favorite songs. All it's right, so awesome. great. And, and I didn't know, 
how good of a guitar player he was until you know I, I started watching these YouTube videos. I'm really interested in in this guy. Um, and he's kind of considered easy listening. Like, I think that he's a country singer, but this era of, of music, even leading up to that, like doo-wop and, and all these this music from the 60s and even into the early 70s, mm-hmm. sort of felt classic because it was um, innocent in a, in a weird way. And that's why it's so weird for me to hear that, like, the Beastie Boys now, who were controversial, are now move or even the Madonna or Prince or any of these people moving right. into that era, they're definitely classic as far as I'm concerned because they came before I did and their, their music has sort of lived on. But it's also like, I don't, I wonder if that plays into this at all because if you're programming it, I guess you have to program it for younger people but this is like a puzzle to put together now I feel like this sure. genre in in particular is the one where it's just sort of like how do we solve this puzzle because who are we trying to are we trying to get younger people to listen to old, like do you, I, I can't even really put it into words the thing that I'm trying because it it's right. such so enig- enig- enigmatic in my head that I'm just sort of like what is the formula because the mm. formula seems to like I will listen to I love the Beastie Boys I listen and CBS Rules but like the I also sort of listen to CBS even as a young person for like uh, you know to hear the Rascals or to hear like right. you know what it's, I mean but this is not the first time that we have hit this cycle you know the okay. change is 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 constant like at one point in time someone said hey listen we can't play little anthony and the imperials next to steppenwolf right right Just at some point in time someone said you know we can't play whatever rock song from uh someone in the mid 70s next to the, then what the Bee Gees were doing right or right we can't play steppenwolf next to the Bee Gees if you're looking as the you know, the era continues. Right, right. It, it just, it seems like we were nostalgic for the 80s before we were really into the mid 90s. I mean, I remember being on the air and we had a Time Warp lunch feature that was playing all these 80s songs and the 80s weren't even five or six years old. I don't know that we have that nostalgic connection yet, you know, for songs from the early 2000s. I think we're starting to see it for the 90s, you know, and, and specific songs are in there. Like one of the newest songs we might play is uh, smooth on CBS FM, just like, right. Just like in Philly, I'm playing, you know, I'm playing Motown Philly from boys to men. And in Dallas, I might be playing, uh, you know, a ZZ top track or something else that is specific to that market that might not be um, uh, as big countrywide, but um, it's just amazing when it comes to the evolution of the format that we have to continue to follow you know what's happening with time what's wrong if you're trying to hold on to a a 50 year old person you know they they want to listen to the radio station to to feel young and maybe to spark some memories (laughs) of their youth so what what can you play for them that whether you're playing whether you're a new music station or a classic hit station you know what does the audience want what will they listen to or you know stand for that will be considered, you know, what still fits the brand, I guess, is the maybe the best kind of angle I'm looking for. I feel like we're at a very strange crossroads because popular music, the way it's always existed, Mm -hmm. doesn't really exist before 
sometime in the 40s, maybe the 30s. I mean, you have all these little sections where we had jazz music and everything. But the idea of a pop star and pop music, I feel like starts with like the Bing Crosby's and the Sinatra's and and those types of guys. I guess you had some a couple singers before that, too. Sure. But the idea of being a big radio star, I I, I feel like does kind of start with that early rock and roll music on the radio. Mm hmm. And now if the oldie stations are kind of phasing or have phased a lot of that music out, the question is, as we keep moving forward, as time keeps moving forward, as a spectator, do you think that just sort of goes away? The idea that that is there a, a, a place where the legacy of that type of music can really live on? Or do we just lose an era of music because... You know, now we're just moving into a place where we're so far removed. At a certain point, like that music's going to be a hundred years old. We're not that far from that, and I don't know. It, it's the same sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. Like in 1950, did they want to listen to music from like the late 1800s? You know, well, I, there weren't so quality to... recordings then, and it was just <laughs> yeah, there weren't the, the Wi-Fi in the 60s was just awful. <laughs> you can't download my playlist. Yeah, terrible <laughs> Wi-Fi. <laughs> here's here's the thing. Um, I remember being a kid uh, while I played, like I made money playing in bands and I played in 50s and 60s bands. And my parents always had, you know, Elvis and the Beatles and all that stuff always playing. So I loved it. Whereas, you know, my peers did not have any affinity for music from that era. Where I'm finding my kids now... Uh, have a, 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 a tolerance maybe isn't the right word, but they like love eighties music. They'll, they'll listen to that. They it's part of their experience. And, you know, my youngest kid, a freshman in high school has a Sinatra playlist and he's got a lo-fi chill music playlist. And, and, and he's got a fifties and sixties doo-wop playlist because his older brother came back from college and said, Hey, I heard these songs in a music history class that I took as an elective. And this is pretty cool. And all of a sudden, guess what? There's little Anthony and the Imperials again. Right. There's all these other doo-wop groups. And, um, and I hope as a musically literate parent that you introduce them to those kind of things. But you have to realize also that not everybody looks at music like we who are sitting behind a microphone or who played an instrument or were in a high school band or studied it to a, an nth degree to be able to you know, past the time, not everybody looks at music the same way. Just like not everybody looks at radio. Like we look at radio. I can't believe right. how many people it's just an appliance. It's, yeah. in my, it's in my car. I'll listen to it. Or it's a, I have one in the kitchen, you know, the, the passion for it is completely different. Yeah. Right. There's one in my shower. It's funny that you bring up the radio thing cause, uh, or the, the music thing. Uh, not everybody is a is a uh, aficionado of it. I mean, I have enough uh, uh, women in my dating apps that that's proof <laughs> that it's, it's hard to have a conversation with somebody who's not very interested in it, <laughs> you know, right. especially when you have that taste. But I, I, that's just something that makes me a little nervous because I, I feel that way with, with movies, too, you know. Right. I I grew up watching these older movies because uh, my my parents and my grandparents were into them. But it does feel like now it's sort of um, unique to be able to find somebody my own age uh, to to talk to them about some sort of any any actual 
Americana nostalgia, whether it's movies, music, whatever. It just doesn't. It seems like it's hard, and it, it's all the stuff that I like. It's I just hate hearing that like that stuff is going to get phased out. It, it it's a bigger psychological problem for me, and I have to work on that. But <laughs> this idea that it's just like like yeah, this music, you know, like. To me, hearing Frankie Valley on CBS FM is like the most New York thing. I love it. And I, I used to, yeah, I used to, I used to be like a, hanging around in the street and you'd hear somebody drive by in a Cadillac and like with, with like Sherry, like blasting out of there. And Absolutely. of course it was on CBS and I don't know. It's just part of the, it, it, like you said with these old other stations that you go to, you know, like playing ZZ Top on Dallas, uh, in Dallas. And boys to men in Philly, it just feels like this is. I'm nervous about losing this element of community and right. losing this sort of um, this uh, this medium that does did kind of like bring everybody together in a weird way. Do you think? Do you still see radio as a tastemaker the way it's always been in terms of just the music industry and? Well, I a I always will because I believe. While a younger generation is turning their ears on discovery to Spotify and random playlists and algorithms, um, I think that radio is also what what sells. I mean, you know, they're, an artist can make some money from streaming, but they're not going to really start to cash in until something gets sold. And how do most people hear it? On the air, if we were to talk to any of the artists from the past, and I know this is an ever-changing and evolving conversation, but, you know, uh, top 40 stations in New York City in the 2000s and 2010s, we moved product. I mean, yeah. it was great. It was, And there was never an artist that said, you know, we really didn't see any uptick or I, I really didn't get wealthy because you played me on, on the air. You know, that was that conversation never happened. Soon as you made it to you know, a, a top 40 station. And I'm not only in New York, but it happened market to market to market. There was a wider breadth of, of discovery and discovery led to sales and sales led to more money for the artists, the publishers, the labels, you know, the opportunity for then those songs to be part of, you know, movie soundtracks or pivotal roles in, in TV shows or whatever. Um, I think you cannot discount 290 million people on a weekly basis still using the product at some point in time. Is it fragmented? Is it different? Is there more competition? Absolutely. There always will be. And there will be people that people that said that radio was going to die, you know, when television made the scene. Right. We're still around. You've been here. How many decades have you right. been hearing that? It, it always. It, are people listening less and less? Are younger people not listening as much? Uh, it's it's evident. However, once you put these young people in a, in a car and tell them they have to drive someplace and get somewhere and they need some sense of community or some more information, uh, whether it's weather or traffic or some of the other elements that that radio brings, I think there will always be the need for a communal experience, the thing that you talk about that you miss so much and you think is, is going to be gone. Time marches on. The songs may change. Yeah. You know, you cannot, you cannot stop that part, but that's where the job as the host comes in to, to weave it all in. I like to think that if I'm not introducing someone 
to a song that is new. I'm maybe introducing them to a fact that is new, that is helping create that bond with an artist they may know or some information on a song they've heard a million times but did not know this certain element or part about it. It's all, I truly believe that it is, it is all connected. We're just competing with those moments now with so many other things that we didn't before. Here is the thing and why I am hopeful for the future of radio. Number one, people like you who love it, who have a connection to it, who want to do it and want to continue somehow to tell stories, but also the fact that all of these new mediums, whether it's Spotify or Apple Music or Pandora or Slacker, while they all started as streaming and just music, now the thing that they want to do is radio. There are personalities, talent, disc jockeys, people who curate the playlists and tell the stories between the songs. Everyone is happy to talk about how unhip radio is, yet all these hip new delivery forms for music and entertainment, the thing that it seems that they want to do is radio. There will always be the need for someone else to to share what is happening, because what is happening when you finally hear something that you that you love. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to share it with someone else. You don't take your favorite 100%. song and keep it to yourself. No, no. You know? you <laughs> it immediately it. goes into a playlist right. for a friend. Or, or even with my kids, it's like, hey, did you ever hear this song from Rung DMC? Or did you, yeah. you know, did you know this about Aerosmith or, or whatever? And I'm just picking some, you know, artists that they would say at random that we've had conversations about. First thing you want to do is have a conversation with someone else about it. Totally. And I, I think there's always an element. It, it, there's something about being first to the band. Uh, like when you discover somebody, that's why I think they're, they're the issue with like the indie music scene for a while. It got to this mm-hmm. point where it was like once the once the band is mainstream, people are like, ah, fuck them. Like they're oh. we're, we're done with them, you know. But again, going back to the like sharing those moments with my parents, like my dad, I, I don't think was a huge music person. But I remember hearing Prince for the first time and it was with my dad. Yeah. And it was around the time I started getting into music. And I think my dad took a lot of I remember being in the car with him. He's just like, he's like, you got this. Do you know Prince? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I don't really, I have heard of him, whatever. I don't really know. Yeah. You know, I don't listen to his music. He stinks. He's from the eighties. I had this thing about the eighties, like to stick up my ass for a long time. Uh-huh. Where I was like, yeah, they're, if they were any good, they would have made music in the seventies or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, my, my dad was telling me, he's like, uh, it was let's go crazy. And there's, there's that solo and let's go crazy. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. And, yeah. My dad goes, he's one of the best guitar players ever. You've got to listen. Like he's, you got to listen to this guitar solo. And I remember thinking like, come on, like, Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton, like whatever. And I was mm-hmm. such a snob. And then I, I started getting into Prince after that. I started listening to it. I was like, oh shit, my dad was kind of right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think he takes a lot of pride. Anytime my dad can sort of like, and I'm sure you feel that too as a dad where you're just like, your your kids are discovering, your kids who are music fans are discovering this stuff and you kind of like break one open on them. You're like, yeah, you you like that. Like, right. uh, have you have you heard Steeler's Wheel? Like, gotta get you a Steeler's <laughs> Wheel album. Like, <laughs> You know, <laughs> you don't even know these guys. Your mind's about to be blown or some <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. I but I don't know if I'll pick Steeler's wheel, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally thinking of things that I listened to like this week. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I had a couple of music questions for you before we get out of here. Cause I know you've been very okay. gracious with your time and I don't want to keep you here all night. Okay. Um, but 
Uh, There's a couple things going back to the idea of us having the classic conversation and and what makes something classic. When these lists comes out, comes when these lists come out, because realistically, music radio as a medium is adjacent to music magazines and um, music blogs, people that have opinions on music. You Mm -hmm. guys are, you know, tastemakers in that way, too. Let's say I don't know if you saw in the fall, Rolling Stone went back and revised their 500 greatest albums list and they tried to make it a little more current. Right. And they did something in my mind that was egregious and they dropped Sgt. Pepper's down to like, I think it was 24 or something. They put other Beatles albums. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I felt too. I thought it was insane. But do you have an opinion? Do you, do you, do you care when you see things like this? When you, when, when this makes it around, because it feels like now Rolling Stone or some of these magazines will, they'll, they'll make something, they'll do something like that to garner up some sort of internet conversation. Cause now you can have that conversation in real time time if i sure. see that that list gets revised i can hop on twitter immediately and be like i can't fucking believe that sergeant pepper's 25th what are they thinking you know what right. changed in 60 years or however long it's been do you have opinions on stuff like that do you like to see those lists get revised do you think it's necessary do you think that even some of this part i think part of the issue with the rock and roll hall of fame and rolling stone is was the conversation for a lot of years about whether hip-hop music um should be on these lists because it's right. so different from rock music, rock and roll music, the kind of the music that started this whole thing. Do you have any opinions on, on really any of the um, 12 things that I just said? Uh, I do to a, to a certain extent. Yes. I mean, I hope that these people are, are doing something that reflects the, the societal needs and, and the passage of time, you know, just because mm-hmm. Rolling Stone maybe came out with this list in 2001 or 2005. Well, 15 years have passed since then. A lot of art and a lot of music has been released. So there needs to be some revisions. But like my problem with the Sgt. Pepper conversation is just from the recording technology and the overdubbing and the multi-tracking alone, that album should never be out of the top 10. You know, groundbreaking from sound layering alone. Yeah, they they kept Pet Sounds number two, and uh, I mean, like, uh, it just doesn't make much sense to me that the that the the reason that Pet Sounds is at number two is because it inspired Sergeant Pepper's, which was number one. Right, right. Because Pet Sounds critically was not like until all those years later was not considered a great album, and right. you know a lot of people still don't fully get it. Mm-hmm. So I just don't understand. I think that there is just so much Beatles hate at this point because they've been considered the biggest band of all time. That I think it's it's sort of like um it's sort of a move from music people to sort of zig and be like oh sergeant pepper is actually not that great and you're just like what are you talking about man like what's changed what has changed in however many years since it's come out that all of a sudden like like a lauren hill album is better than sergeant pepper like sergeant pepper weren't we all in agreement that that was like the one untouchable album right i don't know what the The hell is genius yeah yeah and influence pushing the limits of what you can do with a pop album. Like, like none of these things would exist without that album existing. Yeah. I, this was a, a conversation that I wanted to have in September, but I didn't have a podcast at the time. Cause I was furious. <laughs> and the, the Joni Mitchell album is on there at, at number three. Like the, they, it, it just felt like they've revised that list to piss me off mm-hmm. specifically. Right. And I just remember looking at this, just like Abbey road is not better than Sergeant Peppers. It doesn't make any sense. Right. But, <laughs> but also to answer your question uh, and another reason why I'm, I'm a guest on a podcast and not a host on a podcast is I don't know that I'm that I carry enough strong enough opinions about a a, a lot of things like that. It's not that I don't have them, but it's like my right. my life is to reflect a whole bunch of little things. 
So I feel like I know a, a lot of little things about a ton of stuff, but not enormously deeply passionate enough to, to, to climb that hill on a bunch of other things. So when I see a list like that, I'm like, I'm going to think about this and I might disagree with it uh, on certain point by point basis. But, you know, from an opinion standpoint, it, it's, you know, it's not going to rock my world. I'll live with it for a little while, you know. Got it. That kind okay. of thing. And and I'm so, and I have no problem with the with what they're doing with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there are a lot of people who hate the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a number of other reasons. But yeah. But but I've been there and and I love it and it's cool. And I think there's room for these artists that are not there yet and these genres that they're trying to forge a place in the musical landscape of this country because it is important to such a huge part of our population. And for some people, you know what? It rocks. That's that's what rocks for them. And it's different from from what rocks for me. But that doesn't mean that maybe it does not deserve, uh, you know, a place or it shouldn't be enshrined there for its importance, uh, for its reflection of our culture or its meaning to, you know, to a whole new generation. Do you see it as a big deal when people are snubbed? Like in terms of, I feel like there are certain Hall of Fames if you're a sports fan. Right. It seems like the Basketball Hall of Fame is a lot more inclusive and it seems like it's a little easier to get into the Basketball Hall of Fame than it is to get into like the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, Cooperstown seems to be a little tougher to get into. And it seems like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame it's even more tricky because it's a subjective thing. There are benchmarks usually... You know, for for baseball, it's like you have 3000 hits. Usually that gets you into the Hall of Fame. That's sort of like a uh, it's a statistical number that you can analyze and say that this guy was good enough because of this, this and this. Right. right. Whereas with music, it doesn't it, it kind of seems like even the idea of having the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in some ways is a little silly because right. it's all it's subjective. Like, Right. And certain people move units to different clips and it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not their, their music might not be critically acclaimed. So what is it? What's the diff? Like who gets in based on whose taste? Is it, is it a taste thing? Is it based on how big this person was? But I am curious because they, I, I think that at the least we get a cool concert every year where somebody shows up and it's like, you know, Tom Petty will play with Jeff Lynn and they'll do a Randy Newman song. And yep. you're just like, this is never thought I'd see this, you know? Or so the days in that where there were just like it, 60 guys on stage. I'm like, oh yeah. God. Yeah, <laughs> that first induction. Everybody else, right? Exactly. Oh my God. Yeah, it's Springsteen and, and three of the Beatles and the Rolling right. Stones on stage together Paul with Bob Schaefer, Dylan yeah. singing. For yeah. Buckingham in there and all, who was on? Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. So, But I... As we move into this, there were some snubs. The people that have like been sort of famously snubbed for mm-hmm. a pretty long period of time, uh, and I know that you're you've been trying to be very diplomatic about you know like not having strong opinions. <laughs> but by the way, but I know I answered, you're a music fan. Have I answered even any of your questions? I'm going back to our conversation so far. I'm like, did I even answer that question? <laughs> you have. You've been, you've been great. I'm no, awful. you've been a great guest. <laughs> All right, but I have I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I have nine names here that stuck out to me okay. that are people that are seemingly constantly getting snubbed. Some have been snubbed only for a couple of years. Right. Uh, some have been snubbed for 20 plus. And the ones that have been snubbed for 20 plus to me seem like they need to go in. But I'm curious to know. Uh, I'm just going to rattle off these names. Okay. And I'm just, just your opinion. Should they be in uh, or and. If you think that they should be in, will they get in? Okay. All right. Let's see. All right. 
First name on this list, one of my all-time favorites, Warren Zevon. He's been eligible since 94, has not gotten in. Right, right. Uh, eclectic, I think. Uh, and I've read about Warren and I know of Warren's past. I think he should be in. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I think Warren I, should, should definitely be in. Yeah. I hope that they recognize that because the other aspect of it is that he died so young that it seems like it should be... Right. Well, not so young, but young enough where he could have had way more music come out and we're just never going to get that those albums. Right, exactly. Um, Pat Benatar, eligible since 1993. Yeah, uh, huge influence. I think she won the fan vote or she came in second in the fan vote last year and she's not even on the ballot this year. So how is that? Yeah. how is that working? I don't, I don't get the, the this was a name that shocked me right. when I when I was looking at like the all time snubs. I couldn't believe I just figured out in, in Hawaii. mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably one of the larger female forces in 80s pop music. And she also has written about some of the things that she's had to deal with um, in that era, getting played, getting recognized, what album covers were going to look like. Yeah. Pat, uh, uh, why it's not this year especially after the fan vote was so big last year. But I think her time is coming. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you. All right. Uh, B-52s, eligible since 2004. Mm -hmm. You were there for more of the B-52s than I was. I heard more B-52s on the greatest hits of the 80s type stuff. Right. They had a substantial uh, number of hits. I saw them open for Cher. It was like it was a great show. And it was just... When they were out first before um, Love Shack and all of that era, they were, you know, they were punk. They were mm. all that was alternative, you know, the the rock lobster era of things. And I'm zoning on some other other songs that that we would play because when I first started, I was a part time private of, Idaho. Right. Like, yeah, like a whole new wave kind of thing. And they were they were groundbreaking. It was that kind so of and- really different. Yeah, absolutely. OK. Okay. See, from my sphere of influence, I didn't realize that they were that big. They were always, to me, as someone who wasn't there for it, I right. always just remember the, the got me a sh- uh, girl, she's as big as a wet, like right, the weird right. voice and, and everything. Rust. Yeah. Right. And now right, look so what they, everyone's doing the TikTok dance. For TikTok right. alone this last year, they should be in. Interesting point. Yeah, you're right. Uh, cool in the gang, eligible since 95. Um, I don't, I don't know why they're not in. Mm. I have no idea. Yep. Okay. So, so far we're, we're, I think we're four for four on should be in on the hall of fame. (laughs) Okay. Now we're starting to get to more current people, a little more current. I mean, you know, they're not nineties isn't that current, but, uh, the Pixies eligible since 2013. Uh, I am not all that well versed on the, the Pixies discography. Or influence, so they they are still fringe for me. Okay, but, but that I think that, that might be ignorance, really. But then again, when you're looking at the uh, the influence and the uh, it, not just the exposure and how many people are aware, I don't know that the audience is there. Right. Well, and I think the Pixies are one of the great examples of of one of those bands where it's it's cool to like the Pixies. Yes, but do most people know more than maybe two or three Pixie songs? Right. And isn't that a benchmark to say, you know, if you can rattle off a bunch of cool in the gang or B 52 songs, you know, Pat Benatar immediately, you mentioned that name. You've like an image is burned into oh, your head. Sure. sure. With the Pixies, it's sort of, you know, like you said, they're kind of fringe. So isn't that kind of, doesn't that defeat the purpose of 
They're almost like a utility man in baseball in some ways, you know, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, that guy was great, but Hall of Fame, I don't know. Right, right. I concur. Yeah, I feel this. Okay, good. Tribe Called Quest, eligible since 2015. Now mm. we're moving into the rap stage. I know. And this is where, as you could tell, uh, I am so uh, <laughs> ill-equipped. Yeah. Uh, ill-equipped. But uh, from all of the things and all of the people that came from, tri- from Tribe and all of their influence, over the years, there's a place for them. There should be a place yeah. for them. I agree. I think Tribe is a, uh, they're a great example of if you're thinking about it from the lens of who would induct a Tribe Called Quest into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or who would induct X, whoever it is. I think I immediately go to thinking that Kanye West or Jay-Z or some huge megastar that's obviously going to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right. would be inducting them because of Q-Tip's influence and everything. And I think, again, I think that alone um, adds to the mystique of the fact that they influenced somebody so – these stars that came out. I mean, they were huge in their own right, but – And but you used the key word twice already, and that's influence. Who right, have exactly. they influenced? What, what path did they carve and create and who came – from that branch and right. from that standpoint alone worthy. Right. Adult. Okay. All right. So we're putting tribe in. All right. Three more here. Okay. Barry white eligible since 99, man, you, you know, make me make a decision on Barry. I love Barry. That's eligible a tough since one. Isn't it? 99. Yeah. Really? I, now if I guess he would be a person that I would think, you know, in my imagination is already in. That's what I thought, too. Just because but, of that legendary sound. I mean, he stands out. Yeah. You know, yeah. the warmth, you know, the era, the what uh, what transpired while Barry's music was playing somewhere <laughs> should be enough for some kind of Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I get you. I, he is the go to guy for I think it's him and Marvin Gaye when you put on like, you know, like uh, feeling your girlfriend up music, you know, <laughs> is that, is there a playlist for that. OK, <laughs> I think I think we should make it maybe. Uh, all right. Next name, George Michael, eligible since 2011. Wow. Jo- George Michael. Really? Yeah. Such a, a lengthy catalog. Oh, George is going to be more thoughts from eligible since 2011. Yeah. But like the baseball hall of fame, I don't know that there's a point in time where they fall off the ballot. Right. Is there? I don't think so. I mean, Zevon's been on since 94 right? and Pat Benatar has been on since 93. So it's like, I, uh, you know, if they haven't fallen off by now. Right. I mean, I know to be in, you had has to be what, 25 years since your first recorded release. So, yeah, I believe that's right. So they would have probably put George Michael on relatively early since the first, you know, wham material If 2011. That would be like 1984 is 25 years. So he was probably name gets out there first chance it can. And he's not in yet, really. Uh, I, yeah. could, I could see there being a place for for George. I mean, he was huge in the 80s, right? Yeah. It's not just like this run that I'm misremembering. I mean, even the idea of those music videos, Faith, that's an iconic music video. I mean, right. Uh, Two minutes and, and four seconds of video perfection, I think, is enough to get him into the Hall of Fame right there. Yeah, I'm with you, too. I'm surprised that he wasn't in. That was one of those names where I was just like, it's kind of unbelievable to me because mm-hmm. I felt like he again, I'm not there in the the actual moment for a lot of these people. But, right. you know. I, I think that maybe that also is enough of an argument that the 30 year old kid is like, George Michael's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's crazy to me. Right. You know? 
Last name on this list. This is a. Uh, this is not a. She's a little newer to being snubbed, but okay. Mariah Carey, 2016, she's been eligible, eligible since. Right, right. God, she sold some of the biggest songs of the '90s. Absolutely, she holds and the biggest so, Christmas song ever. Yep, uh, ever. And and it comes back every year, and it will continue to. I mean, that play that song has its place in time. You know, for yeah, from here on out. Quite honestly, um, yes, absolutely, Mariah Carey for the range. Yeah, you know, for the amount of songs that reach just that level of mass appeal, and I know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is not about mass appeal. Yeah. I know that's, you know, not part of the thing, but if it's not in the in the hall, then how do you acknowledge all of, you know? Yeah, and I mean, got, realistically, she's got to be one of the first pop singers who is folding in uh, hip-hop artists into her mainstream right. major hits, you know? Right. I mean, that how, how, how much, how much did Jay-Z benefit from being on Heartbreaker? You know, how, how much, how, all these guys that were involved in the Tom music. Tom Club and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that's the end of the list. Race. We're good. Uh, listen, I think the time for we we've now almost maxed out two um, uh, limited Zoom meetings. <laughs> so everyone, good night. <laughs> I think it's I think it's time for us to get out of here. I enjoyed Is this anything- conversation. I enjoyed it. I'm glad. I'm really. Ha- you were a great guest, by the way. I know you're not used to being a guest, but I can tell you, you were a plus. Oh, thank you very much. I I uh, you know, uh, I I think the only thing I really skirted was um, when did we start to see the the digital age begin. When it comes to the world of radio and I can't pinpoint a a spot really, you know, it's almost always been, you know, even when someone sends me a photo of their dashboard right now and it's got the CBS logo on there, I'm like, well, is that, but you're in, you know, Tennessee or Detroit. And they're like, I've I've got it on with the radio.com app. It comes right through my dashboard. And that amazes me still. Yeah. So no matter how you get it, it's still going to be radio. If you can listen to it in your car speakers. Yeah, um, but I get you, man. Well, that, that's a good reason to have skirted it if you can't pinpoint. No, uh, it started <laughs> to be photos. We need a photo for the internet. Then it was like yeah. you. You look the same in every photo. Is that your real smile? You know, do you show your teeth? I'm like, this is it. This yeah. I got into radio because of this. This is yeah. the whole deal. So you know what? Uh, put the picture up. Ask ask our friend Dan Mulqueen how fun it is to photograph and video me. You'll get a couple shout of out stories. to Dan. That's right. Well, lucky for you, there will be pieces of this video on the internet somewhere. So you do look great, by the way. Okay. So I wouldn't sweat it if I were you. But great. Uh, oh, is there God, anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here that um, I didn't plug? Uh. Just radio in general. You know what? Since the country world and all of their artists really seem to thank radio at every turn, the pop world seems to forget that. And being someone who's on the other side of the microphone or the MP3 or the CD or at once upon a time uh, vinyl, uh, I owe radio a tremendous amount of gratitude for, you know, for my life, for my love of music. Um when, when you asked if I ever envisioned this for me, I know that I, that I love music and I, and I tried like crazy to be a professional gigging musician. And it came down to, well, if I can't, you know, play on the records, maybe I'll, I'll play the records and I will surround my life with all of this art, which I love that comes, whether it's in a, a three minute and 40 second package of a song or 12 seconds of the jock 
talking over the intro, using a part of a phone call and making me laugh. To me, it's all art. It, it's, there's all a craft to it. And it all has a chance to make or break someone's day or mood or feeling. And, and that's why I'm in it. So thank you, radio. Thank you, radio. And listeners, definitely, long story short, listen to the fucking radio, man. Uh, <laughs> listen to this first, but listen to, listen to the radio. Right. I need, I need to, I got to make my money here, Race. But thank you. Totally, <laughs> listen to the radio first. I totally get it. Uh, Race Taylor, thank you so much for being here. Listeners, uh, please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. You heard it at the, the first half of the, the episode. Uh, we appreciate you listening, and we'll see you again next week. Um, and until then, goodbye. Mike Coscarelli Rules is hosted by Mike Coscarelli. Executive producer, Mike Coscarelli. Supervising producer, Mike Coscarelli. Associate producer, Ronnie Side. Edited by Mike Coscarelli. Sound design by Mike Coscarelli. Podcast and social artwork by Chris Cheney. Special thanks to all the losers and the haters. <laughs>